I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 15 through the end of the chapter. We pick up this evening in our study of the book of Exodus where we left off last time. You might recall that after that final tenth and most devastating plague of the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians, including Pharaoh himself, drive the Israelites from among them. God has freed his people. He has freed them from captivity and slavery. Just as he has said, he is victorious over the enemies of God. And even more than that, he provides for them in abundance by giving them the splendor, the the plunder from the land of Egypt. However, when the children of Israel leave the land of Egypt, you'll remember that they do not travel along that most directed or expected route from Canaan toward or toward the land of Canaan, but instead they take a more southerly route through the wilderness. True to God's nature, there is purpose in all things, and there is wonderful purpose in guiding them to the edge of the Red Sea, as we'll see this evening as we pick up in our text in verse 15. But before reading, let's go to the word to the Lord in prayer. Our God, we give you thanks for this opportunity to hear from your word of truth. We are grateful for your work of sovereign grace that is evidence in the life of our brother Greg. As we think about how you have worked so particularly in our own lives, we are amazed at your sovereign goodness and faithfulness unto us. As we consider these grand themes of redemptive history, Would you grow us to understand more our need for Christ and the marvel that we are His? And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen.' 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The word of our God, you may be seated. Now let's again remember from last time that the Pharaoh hears that the Israelites are traveling along this bizarre route upon their release from Egypt. His heart is stirred toward anger and toward vengeance. He gathers together his army, and the text, as we see it again tonight, places this emphasis upon the gathering of the chariots to go after the Israelites. They are preparing to fight. They are preparing for battle. They are not going out to negotiate some sort of terms of return. If they cannot recapture Israel and put them back into slavery, then no one can have them. And as the army of Egypt appears upon the horizon, the children of Israel are fear, filled with fear. They cry out to the Lord. They complain to Moses, for they see no way out. With the sea behind them and the army of Egypt bearing down upon them, they are trapped. They're in an impossible situation. But Moses, as that divinely appointed mediator who trusts in the Lord, assures them that salvation is coming. Freedom and redemption are at hand. They are to merely be silent. They are to stand. They are to watch And they are to look at what the Lord will do to save them. And they are to be comforted with this promise that they shall never return to the land of Egypt and they shall never see the Egyptians again. Now, it is not just God's power. It is not just God's authority that is on majestic display throughout these chapters of God's Word. But it is His wonderful love, His tender mercy, and care for his people that is evident as he ministers to their hearts. Now, this text that is before us tonight captures the most epic event in Old Testament redemptive history. This is the event upon which the identity of the nation of Israel hinges. This is the paradigm for how the Lord works salvation And this is the most wonderful picture of how he will redeem in Christ Jesus. And so that brings us to the first thing that we see in our text tonight, and that is the Lord's instruction to the covenant mediator. The Lord's instruction to Moses, we see this in verses 15 through 18. Look again at verse 15. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, at first glance, this seems like a strange statement to Moses for a couple of reasons. First, think back just a couple of verses, if you'll recall, in the text, we read these words of Moses to the people. Fear not, stand firm, 
Look to the Lord's salvation. The Lord will fight for you. Just be silent. These are remarkable words of trust uttered from the mouth of Moses as he stands against the complaints of the people. So why is the Lord now rebuking Moses here in verse 15 for crying out to him? Was Moses grumbling and complaining within his heart, a heart known only to the Lord, and he is rebuked for that? Is there something missing in the text in which Moses audibly complained against these circumstances, and the Lord is exhorting him for that? I don't think so. I think it's just this. Moses, as the covenant mediator, represents the complaints of the people before God. In a way, it is their disobedience and grumbling and their lack of faith that is imputed to Moses. The people sin, and the Lord rebukes Moses as though he has sinned. And Moses says this explicitly later in the Pentateuch in places like Deuteronomy 3, verse 26, and chapter 4, verse 21. Texts that are virtually identical. And it's here that Moses says, the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. Now, Moses is not blame shifting. This is not the typical husband who says that, no, my problem is actually your problem that became my problem. This is Moses making a statement as a covenant mediator. He represents the people before God. And this is important theological instruction, you see, because Moses is merely a shadow of the great mediator, the Lord Jesus, who takes the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus represents us upon the cross as he bears the wrath of God that we deserve. Now, as commendable as Moses was, as that covenant mediator of old, he is weak and frail, and he could not adequately bear the sins of the people, nor could he bear the full brunt of God's wrath. But he points us ahead to one who will, to one who can, and one who does do such things. And notice the second thing that seems a bit strange in these words to Moses in verse 15. There is the content of this rebuke tell the people to go forward. I think we can reasonably ask, where are they supposed to go forward? There is the Egyptian army on one side, and there is the Red Sea on the other. But the command you see to move forward is really a call to faith. It's a call to trust in the Lord who has already shown his power and ability to save them from captivity in Egypt. And so move forward through the eyes of faith, not the eyes of sight. And then notice as we move on in verse 16 that Moses' role is not only one of suffering in which he is rebuked by the Lord there in verse 15, rebuked on behalf of the people, but his role as mediator is also one of glory and might as the one who has been appointed by God. Now imagine hearing these words from the Lord. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand, and divide the sea in half. God says it almost as simple as open the drawer, take out the knife, 
and cut the apple in half. The power of God is so majestic, so wonderful, that for him there's no difference between those two. And it is God's power which is on display through the staff of Moses, a staff which represents God's presence and power, judgment, and authority. Of course, Moses does not have such power himself, nor is this some power that is inherent within the staff. It is the power of the Lord which is on display through the covenant mediator and through the means of this staff of judgment. One pastor I listened to put it like this. He said, as Moses is to cut the sea, the Lord will cut in two the bondage to sin and death. And the Lord goes on as he speaks with Moses in verses 17 and 18 to reiterate things that he has already said throughout these opening chapters of Exodus. He, the Lord, is the one who will harden the hearts of Pharaoh and the hearts of the Egyptians to accomplish his purposes. The Egyptians will come to know the power and the might of the Lord, and ultimately God will bring glory to himself. Everything is about the glory of God, and he will most certainly accomplish that purpose. Now, our comfort, if we were to pause at this point in the text and think for a moment of an application of this for our own lives, our comfort is that all that the Lord says he will do. One of the great lessons that we can learn from these chapters of Exodus is that God's word is trustworthy and sure. That which God says is as good as done. A promise as we look to the future is as good as though it has been accomplished in the past. And so there's been this pattern throughout these chapters of Exodus The Lord speaks, telling the people through Moses what he will do. Things don't always work out the way in which they think it should. Things don't always work out according to the timing in which they might like. But God accomplishes what he says. And this is the comfort that we as God's people can derive as well. Well, Let's move on in our text secondly this evening to see salvation for the people of God. Salvation for God's people in verses 19 through 22. Now, notice as we read of the Lord's salvation for his people, we read again of this presence of the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord who moves in such a way to protect them. Now, when Israel first left Egypt, you'll recall that it was the Lord who appeared in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to direct them in this visible manifestation of his presence. Just look back to chapter 13, verse 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people." And so with this visible guidance from the Lord, there is no question as to where they should go. It was abundantly clear. And it was the Lord who directed the people to this very spot where they find themselves hemmed in. And now it is the Lord who moves from going before them 
leading them along this particular path to now moving behind them, protecting them from their enemies. And now this pillar of cloud acts as this wall of defense, not only keeping the Egyptians from advancing forward against the Israelites, but keeping them in darkness and in confusion. While for the Israelites, they have light and they have the comfort that God is with them. And just think in your own life of the comfort that is ours through the ongoing presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. It is the tender ministry of the Spirit of the risen Christ who helps us to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And then we come to this most wondrously miraculous event of the parting of the Red Sea in verses 21 and 22. Moses obeys the word of the Lord that he had previously said to him. He does exactly what God tells him. By faith, he stretches out his hand over the waters. He holds the staff, and God sends this strong east wind, which blows all night long, parting the waters, that the people of God may walk across on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And I think we're meant to picture exactly what the text says, literally a wall of water on either side. This is no small creek. This is no riverbed. This is a deep sea of water that is parted before them in this most majestic display of God's power, of his presence, and of his authority. And note how the Lord here uses the staff of Moses and the strong east wind as appointed means, but ultimately he is the one who drives the sea back. Walls of water on either side, and the Lord even dries the bed of the sea that the people might walk across on dry ground. And so while the Lord employs the use of this mighty wind throughout the night, this in no way detracts from the miraculous power of the Lord. This is nothing less than the divine hand of the Lord God pushing back that water that seems so insurmountable, so powerful and fearful. Perhaps you've had this experience of standing at the seashore. Really, this works on either coast. You stand with your feet sort of buried in the sand a bit, and one small wave comes and hits you on the legs and takes you aback. The power of the water is a majestic thing that reveals our own weakness and impotence. But before such things, they are nothing before the Lord. No obstacle is too great for Him. As you might imagine, there have been attempts to dismiss this event as scientifically improbable. The story goes that there was a liberal preacher who was visiting a church in the South, perhaps a church described by our brother Greg, a different denomination in which we'll just say the congregation was a bit more lively than is typical in Presbyterian circles. They interacted a lot more with these guest preachers who would come. And as the preacher came to this particular text and he read about the Israelites parting through or going through the Red Sea that the Lord had parted, there was a voice that yelled out, hallelujah, What an amazing miracle from the Lord that he parted the Red Sea, saving the children of Israel. 
But the preacher responded, it actually wasn't a miracle at all. We understand now through scientific advancement that it was just a strong wind that pushed back some water, but they really walked across on a few inches of water, perhaps in a marshland, to get to the other side. He returned to his text and continued reading from this narrative and this account, and he got to the place where the Egyptian army drowned in the sea, and the same voice replied, hallelujah, what an amazing miracle from the Lord that he drowned the entire army of Egypt in a few inches of water. (laughs) The Lord is truly the master of all that he has made and is wondrous to his salvation. And so the presence of the winds and the emergence of dry land is reminiscent of the creation narrative that we find in Genesis chapter 1. It was there, you'll recall, that the face of the earth was formless, without void, but it was the Spirit of God, the same word that is used for wind, who parted the waters and brought forth dry land, bringing order and bringing life to creation. God is delivering His people through this wondrous event. It is their salvation through the waters of judgment that brings them through to the other side as a new creation, a new people who are to be devoted to him. We read in Isaiah 43, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, the waters of the Red Sea, I will be with you. And through the rivers, recall the parting of the Jordan as the Israelites moved into the land of Canaan, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, the fire of exile and trials, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not for I am with you. And third in our text, judgment. Judgment falls upon Egypt in verses 23 through through 27. And so notice here in the text how God sort of lures the Egyptians into the sea all for his glory. Perhaps they believe that they can still overtake the Israelites before they get to the other side. Perhaps in their confusion, they don't know what has transpired all night in the parting of the Red Sea, but in their bloodthirsty rage, they are only fixated upon the Israelites and unaware of where they're actually headed. But as the morning light comes and the army and the chariots and the horsemen rush into this pathway, we read that the Lord looks down. He looks down from the pillar of cloud and fire. He looks down from his exalted place as the transcendent king over all. He looks down as the one who has authority over all things and who is righteousness himself and throws down judgment upon them. Someone has put it like this, that the Lord God was their shield and now he is their sword as he fights for them. And verse 25 of the text is interesting. Notice as the Lord intervenes to fight on behalf of Israel, the text is a little 
difficult here, but he either causes those chariot wheels to be bent in on themselves to fall off or to get lodged into the ground. But whatever happens, it is clear to the Egyptians that this is the God of Israel who is fighting against them. And they realize that they are defeated and they attempt to flee. And the Lord's judgment, the text tells us, is heavy It is heavy upon them, pressing them down so that they cannot escape. Now, this word translated as heavy is is an interesting word. We have seen it frequently throughout these narratives. When the Lord has looked into the heart of Pharaoh, he has weighed it. He has found it wanting, for it is heavy under condemnation. And the Lord's judgment is to weigh down and press upon him even further. Guilt and condemnation and judgment. But this word has the same root which refers to God's glory, to the weightiness of the Lord. And so the glory of God will either weigh someone down in guilt and condemnation, for they are justly deserving of his wrath. It is a fearful thing indeed. Or that glory is seen as most majestic and wonderful for the one who rests in Christ. For it is Christ who has taken the weight of such judgment of sin and guilt upon himself. And notice, it is this singular, same event which brings salvation for those who are God's people and judgment for others. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 writes, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see, it is baptism which points to our engrafting into Christ, for it is Christ who carried us with him through those waters of judgment, bearing the curse. And it is that old life, that life of sin and death that is to be severed. And we are made alive on the other side of the shore for Jesus is the one who has brought us through. So for Israel, their time in Egypt is called a descent. They go down into the land of Egypt. Down, not just geographically, but down into slavery into oppression, into a land that is obsessed with death in which there is no freedom. But now they emerge, reborn into new life. Michael Morales, who is an Old Testament professor at Greenville Seminary, has written a wonderful book on the Exodus motif that is found throughout the pages of Scripture, writes this, For Israel, the dry land emerges as they journey out of darkness, ascending out of the sea toward the rising sun as that new day dawns on the eastern horizon. Through the waters, Israel has died to death and been reborn, resurrected as the people of Yahweh. Salvation is an act of new creation. And that brings us fourthly and finally in the text to the response of the people in verses 30 and 31. And so the Israelites see the Lord's wondrous work of salvation. They are recipients of this most wonderful act of redemption 
This event brings new life. This event is meant to serve as the foundation for the rest of their lives. Now, from here on out in their history, every time Israel strays into grumbling, into complaining, and even straying into the wickedness of idolatry, it's because they have failed to remember. They have failed to live in obedience because of the Lord's salvation. But at this point in the history of the nation, their response is right, and it is appropriate. The fear of Egypt, the fear of death, the fear of the sea are all driven out by a new and glorious fear, fear of the living God and trust in the one whom he has provided as mediator. You see, Egypt, which represents sin and death, will not let Israel go. There is only one way of escape. There is only one hope of salvation, and it is the path that God has provided for them. The only way that Israel can truly depart from Egypt is through the waters of judgment. The only way they will never see that former way of life again is through this valley of death and emergence into new life. In the same way, the only way to leave behind that old man of corruption and that body of death is through the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Savior. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, let's look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Do you see the charge from the Apostle Paul here? It is the objective work of Christ which changes you subjectively. 
It is the complete work of Jesus that brings new life to those who rest in him. You are new creatures in Christ. And if new creatures in Christ, then you are to walk in newness of life, no longer living for yourselves, no longer living to serve those wicked desires, but you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, fearing the Lord, listening to his mediator, believing his promises, and heeding his voice. And when you find yourself, just like the Israelites, tempted to grumble and to complain against the Lord, remind yourself of what has already been accomplished for you in your salvation. Do you think that the God who divided the Red Sea is powerless to intervene in your own life? Do you think that the one who sent his only son to die for you is going to abandon you now and not provide? You are under grace. Sin has no dominion over you. You will never be forsaken. And so new life is theirs, but they have not yet arrived. There is still the journey ahead to the land of promise. If you are in Christ, you have been transferred from the realm of sin and death to life and light, and you have peace with God. Eternal life is a present possession, but you have many trials to go, many trials in the road ahead to prepare you, to make you ready for the inheritance that awaits you. And so by his grace, may we persevere as we look to the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has delivered us, that we might now serve him in joyful obedience and devotion walking in a manner worthy of our calling. May God be pleased to take the truth of his eternal word and write it upon the hearts of his people.